0: All right. How you all doing today? Very good. Let me just say a, a word, throw my shoulder into the announcement that Pastor Johnny uh, made regarding the block party that's coming up this week. When we were talking uh, as a staff earlier this summer about ideas uh, for block parties and outreach, uh, the idea of a, of a World Cup uh, block party was, uh, was put forward, and, and uh, I said, who's going to come to that? Because I… I grew up in the northwest suburbs, and it just wasn't a thing. And I think all the staff looked at me like I crawled out from under a rock, and Johnny still is not talking to me uh, to this, <laughs> this day. So I've been trying to you know, work my way out of that. But here's the thing. Whether you are into soccer or you are not into soccer, that is somewhat besides the point for why we're doing the block party. We do want it to be a time for all of us to connect as a church family together. And, and uh, if you love soccer, this will be uh, particularly fun for you. But the block parties that we're doing this summer are also uh, for us to be able to invite friends and neighbors in the Oak Park community or Berlin or or wherever it is that you're coming from. And so let me really challenge you to prayerfully consider who you would bring this Saturday not going to have a big gospel presentation, but it's a chance for you to connect friends that are outside of the Calvary community with friends that are inside the Calvary community, get that to know them, and introduce them to the church, and hopefully, ultimately, to introduce them uh, to Christ over time. So this is a great uh, outreach opportunity, and I would encourage you to make good use of it, and uh, I'll be there uh, this Saturday and praying about who uh, might invite and bring to this. And so let me just really encourage you to do that, to not look at this simply as something that you might be interested in or not be interested in, but to see it as a missional opportunity. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. So now we're continuing on in our sermon series uh, on Matthew. And uh, last week, Pastor Johnny was preaching out of Matthew 14, looking at the way that Jesus' interaction with some of the folks there in Matthew 14 kind of fleshed out Jesus' parable uh, of the sower. And if you remember the parable of the sower, Jesus was talking about different types of soil as analogous to different kinds of people. And there were three types of soil that did not receive the Word and produce fruit, but one type of soil that did. And one of the principal points of that parable is that there's something uh, that's needed. There's a grace that's needed to become the kind of soil that is able to receive the Word of God and bear fruit, the implication being that we don't come into the world as good soil, right? This is the reality of sin. And one of the primary things that we learn from the Gospels, really the whole of of the Scriptures, is that Jesus came to address human brokenness, to solve the problem of sin. Sin's an old-fashioned religious word, but it's also a biblical word. And the Bible talks about sin in two basic ways. The first way that the Bible talks about sin would be as a behavior behavior. It's an action uh, that we take, and this would be something that's contrary to the, to the great commandment that Jesus uh, notes, the commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Anything that we do that is in breach of these uh, two high aims of loving God and loving others would be considered a sin. So sin fundamentally uh, is, an, is, a, is an unloving action, right? It's a breach of love. but. Sin is not just described in the Bible as a behavior. More fundamentally than that, sin is described as a condition of the human heart. So what the cough is to a cold, right? Sin is to the human condition or to the human heart. The sinful behavior reflects a brokenness or a dysfunction in the human heart. So sin is an action and it's also Uh, it's also a condition. None of us, of course, want to be broken, right? Whatever we think about the actions that we might take, none of us want to be broken, whether we're Christians, whether we're not Christians, whatever uh, place in life we're coming from this morning, we don't want to be broken. Sometimes, of course, we want to indulge in our brokenness like an alcoholic or a glutton indulges in wine, or in food, but as much as an alcoholic likes his wine or a glutton likes her food, we don't like to be an alcoholic or to be a glutton. None of us want to be broken. We may may not want to give up our dysfunctional actions, but but we all want to be free from the brokenness that drives the actions. So how do we break free? How do we make progress in shaking off the patterns of behavior that harm our relationship with God, that harm our relationship with each other, that harm our relationship with ourselves. Today's passage, Jesus has yet another run-in with the Pharisees. If you've been here through the Matthew series, you see that Jesus is fairly frequently now having run-ins with the Pharisees. Followed then in Matthew's account by a rather bracing conversation with the Canaanite woman. And these two interactions, I think, give us some deep insight about the root of sin, sinfulness, where it comes from, what it is. That's think found in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. But then also its cure or the path forward, which I think we see in the account of the Canaanite woman. So if you're a Christian here today, then let me encourage you to embrace this passage as a reminder of what the gospel says about sin, what the gospel says about you, what the gospel says about Jesus and his willingness to redeem. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then I want you to listen in today, and I think perhaps you just might find that the way that Jesus frames up the human condition, just see if that if that corresponds to what you intuitively know to be true about your life and then consider the claims that Christ would put upon your life and then beyond any individual application from the sermon that you might have or i might have uh, i want us to think about this sermon and how it or this passage and how it applies to us as a congregation calvary memorial church. This text, I think, invites us to consider what kind of congregation we will be and can be. All right? So without further ado, let's dig into uh, our text, starting out in chapter 15, verse 1. We see that the Pharisees have come all the way from Jerusalem. So the Pharisees, that's where they hang out. That's their seat of power. They live in Jerusalem. In any case, here's some Pharisees from Jerusalem. Jesus is, no, is not in Jerusalem. He's outside uh, of Jerusalem. The Pharisees come all the way from Jerusalem to talk to him about hand-washing. It's an interesting thing to do. They've come a great distance to talk to Jesus about hand-washing. The Pharisees, of course, you might remember, they're the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They are the professional keepers of the Jewish religious law. They've got all this stuff figured out. And they've come to Jesus to talk about hand-washing. Kids, this might might make you think a little bit about home, right? Maybe perhaps like with your mother, and she's always talking to you about hand-washing. Maybe it's your dad, but I found that typically this tends to run in the domain of moms. And if that happens, you can just say to your mom the next time, mom, stop being a Pharisee. And just see, see how that goes. Just quote Jesus, who says, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone, mom. Now, she might quote the words of Jesus about if you don't honor your father and mother, it's, you're worthy of death. So you just have to be careful how far you push this. But in any case, when we think of hand washing in our culture, we think of hand washing in terms of hygiene and cleanliness and germs. That's not the category for hand washing in the uh, days of Jesus, they didn't have those kind of categories. The issue is not about hygiene, but about ceremonial purity. And it can be helpful, I think, as we consider what's going on in this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees to understand the background and the context of why they're talking about hand-washing to begin with. The Pharisees didn't come all the way from Jerusalem to talk about hygiene with Jesus. There's something deeper going on. We see this when we understand that a primary function of the Jewish law... Was to purify the nation of Israel. So the Jewish laws contained in, in, uh, in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Primarily, though, that's, that's called the law, but primarily in the book of Leviticus, we have these purity laws that God has given his people. And the laws make a strong division between Jew and Gentile. So Gentile would be non Jews. The, the law makes a strong division between Jew and Gentile, separating out the Israelites who are God's chosen people from the Gentiles who are into pagan idolatry. So the law basically said, don't eat with Gentiles, don't marry Gentiles, don't let them live in your land. In other words, stay away from them or they will corrupt you. So did the, did the Israelites listen to God's law on this? No, they did not. And so it proved true. The Israelites didn't honor the distinction between Jew and Gentile. They were pulled into the pagan idolatry of the Gentiles. They intermarried with the Gentiles, took upon themselves the worship of the pagan foreign gods, and the full weight of the Jewish law then fell upon them. The Jewish law had a provision or a curse that if they were to not follow God's law and persist in disobedience, then God would bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. And sure enough, the city was sacked The Jerusalem was sacked as a form of divine punishment in 586. The Babylonians came in, wiped out the city, took them into captivity. And there was some recovery of this over the years, but never a full recovery. And it was an on-again, off-again thing with captivity and God's judgment all the way up until the day of Jesus, where we read Matthew 15. And the the Jewish people find themselves under the Roman thumb. So along the way, some righteous uh, Jewish uh, uh, scribes and, and teachers said, we can't let this happen again. This can never happen again. We can't have the people disobeying the law. We're going to have to get really serious about obeying the law. And so they began to develop a very uh, complex teachings around what it meant to develop the law. These people eventually emerged as the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They said, we're going to follow the law to a T, T." No more disobedience, no more fudging around the margins. In fact, we're going to go above and beyond what the law requires just to make certain that we're not in breach of the law. So over time, they develop their own rules, their own laws, their own traditions about how best to follow God's law so they wouldn't be in breach of it. And this is where Jesus mentions the traditions of the elders. This is where this comes in. So hand-washing was one of the traditions of the elders that was developed not out of the purity codes of God's law, but was developed out of the religious laws of the religious, uh, of the religious leaders of the Jews in order to protect the laws that God had given. And here's the logic of hand-washing, as best we can tell. It goes something like this. If Gentiles are sinful and we're not to eat with them, what would happen if we touch something that had been touched by a Gentile or perhaps even a sinful Jewish person like a leper or a woman of ill repute or something. If we ate something with our hands after touching something that had been touched by a Gentile, because Lord knows we would never actually touch a Gentile, that's never going to happen, right? But let's say a Gentile, unbeknownst to us, touched something that we touched, then our hands would be unclean and then we would be eating with unclean hands and we would contaminate the food that we eat and then our food would be unclean. And that's not going to do. So since we can't know if a Gentile sinner touched something that we touched, then we're going to ceremonially rinse our hands before every meal so as to remove any kind of impurity. That was the logic of the hand washing. And so Jesus' disciples are not on board with this program. Jesus' disciples, when they move around, they're eating with their hands, and they're not ceremonially rinsing their hands before the meal. And the Pharisees, again, are not concerned about hygiene, but they see this as a breach of the commands that the, that the traditions of the elders have given, which then threaten to undermine, perhaps, God's law itself. And so this is a, this, there's high stakes involved in this conversation, and they've come from Jerusalem to confront Jesus on this very issue. These rules, like the hand-washing, the Pharisees had developed I mean, hundreds of these rules that governed almost any area of Jewish life, spelled out in great detail about what could and couldn't be done in an effort to protect uh, the integrity of the law. And the Pharisees had not only mastered the Jewish law, they had mastered all these traditions of the elders as well. And they frankly felt pretty self-righteous about their capacity to maintain um, uh, ceremonial and and, uh, moral cleanliness. But the rules that they they had developed, these were their rules, not God's rules. And God, as it relates to the issue of hand-washing, had never said to the Israelites that they needed to wash their hands before eating. So Jesus has no patience with all the layers that the the Pharisees have added onto God's law. And he accuses the Pharisees of honoring their own traditions, the traditions of the elders, over and above God's traditions. And you see this... um, here, when he it starts talking about the way that they're handling money, the Pharisees, of course, they say, why do you break the traditions of the elders? And Jesus responds by saying, why do you break the commands of God? And he says, look at the way that you guys handle money. Now, there's a, there's a little bit to be said here, which I'm not going to try to get too far into, but the basic gist of what seems to be going on with the money is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had developed a way for a young man to, to pledge his money to God that allowed him not to have to spend it on his parents, but yet allowed him to use it for himself. And so there's, there's kind of a loophole, as it were, for getting her out of the responsibility for caring for the aged parents And the money eventually made its way to the coffers of the religious establishment of which the Pharisees were a part. So you can understand why they were going along with this loophole. And Jesus sees the hypocrisy of this. He sees the hypocrisy. You're following religious tradition in a way that benefits you, that abrogates the clear law of God. And he calls them hypocrites here in verse 7. You hypocrites. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he just has no patience for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And I love this part. He calls the crowd over in verses 10 and 11. And I, you, you kind of have this uh, image here in this, in this scene where the Jesus is with the crowds, the Pharisees have shown up, or maybe the crowds have come when, they've, when they saw the Pharisees show up, but Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees. The crowd's kind of hanging back on the edge. Jesus rebukes them, and then he calls the crowd over as if to say, like, you guys want to see some hypocrisy? I got some hypocrisy right here, you know? So the Pharisees probably weren't much caring for this, but Jesus calls the crowd over to insult the Pharisees, you know, <laughs> publicly. It's fantastic. So <clears throat> he calls the crowd over, verses 10 through 11, and, he, and, he, and he, uh, he rejects the logic of the Pharisees by saying it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And then the crowd is dismissed, and Jesus' disciples come to him, and, and um, they say, hey, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when you called them a hypocrite? I could just imagine Jesus being like, oh, really? Did I? <laughs> I, uh, I didn't realize that. No, I mean, he he's... <laughs> He was actually working pretty hard, I think, to offend them. So, um, so yes, Jesus knew he had offended them. But the disciples don't quite get what Jesus was saying about this, like, eating, and it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. And they ask for him to explain the parable. And Jesus then, in verse 17, gives, like, the heart of what he's saying. So he says, "'Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled?' But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus' primary point in this is that uncleanliness does not come from outside in, but from inside out. And cleanliness doesn't come from outside in like the Pharisees taught, but from inside out. And that's where the Pharisees, who were so devoted to the law, who were so devoted to the law, completely missed the point of the law. When you read the purity laws of the Old Testament, you go back into Leviticus and you begin to look at the purity laws that are given there. You realize, you pretty quickly realize, that the various regulations there made it virtually impossible to maintain ceremonial cleanliness. Skin diseases, which you contracted through no fault of your own, made you unclean. Childbearing made you unclean. Any kind of unusual bodily discharge made you unclean. The normal natural discharges of the male and female reproductive systems made you unclean. Marital sex made you unclean. And if that wasn't bad enough, Touching anyone who was unclean or touching anything that they had touched made you unclean. Even bowel movements had to be handled a certain way so as to avoid uncleanliness. It was virtually impossible to maintain consistent cleanliness. This is why you see in the Old Testament, before a certain high and holy day or a secret mission, you'd have to purify yourself because it was understood you just probably weren't pure. You couldn't maintain ceremonial purity. Purity. The point of all this isn't about childbearing or skin disease or sex or bodily discharge. That's not the point. The law was showing in a symbolic material sense what is spiritually and universally true of the human condition. The law, through its purity codes, communicated that all human beings, including the Jews, including the clean Pharisees, could not get free from their defilement. The defilement that contaminated the person who was under the law was a defilement endemic to the human condition. You, to be a human being, this is, the, this is the critique of the law, to be a human being means to be unclean. The law, through its purity codes, say that we cannot get free from our defilement. And the primary reason we cannot, Jesus is saying here, it's because we carry our uncleanliness around inside of us. It comes from the outside, it comes from the inside out. That's the point of the purity laws. The problem with the Pharisees was that they failed to understand what the law was saying to them about their true condition. They saw the laws that required them to separate from the outside world, and they understood that there was uncleanliness on the outside, and they had mastered, they had mastered their capacity to fence off or to hedge off the outside world elaborate labyrinths and systems to keep the world at bay. But they had failed to see that the true defilement that defiled them fundamentally was the defilement that came from their own heart. And Jesus is insisting, in keeping with the true spirit of the law, that spiritual uncleanliness does not come from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's not what comes to you from the outside that defiles you, but rather what comes out of you from the inside this is what defiles you and this is super important to understand it's important to understand as you interact as you're reading through the gospel accounts and you're trying to understand what some of the major fundamental paradigm differences are between Jesus And the Pharisees. This is one of the fundamental differences and disagreements between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so much of what Jesus is doing in his critique of the Pharisees, he's critiquing them because they refuse to see that sin is woven into them. It's it's part of their condition as human beings. They think of sin only as actions outside of themselves that they can master, but they fail to see that sin is on the inside. Jesus is always coming back to them on this point but it's not just important to understand this so you can make sense of the gospel accounts as you're reading it, but it's important to understand it because we have our own pharisaical ways following in the pattern of the Pharisees, trying to deal with our own sense of human brokenness and sin. We don't get preoccupied with ceremonially washing our hands, but we can fall into the same trap of thinking that by manipulating our environment, we're gonna find purity and cleanliness or wholeness. We think that somehow the answer lies outside of ourselves. So perhaps we might think like this. Oh, if I only had a new job, if I only had a new job, I could be more purposeful, more productive. The problem is my boss, and my boss, he doesn't inspire me, or my boss, this, or the job, that. And, And if I only had a new job, then I could have purpose in life. Or if only I had a new spouse, I could be more loving. I could be more tolerant. When I said that in the first service everyone laughed about the thought of having a new spouse. I'm trying to figure out what that means exactly. You're more sober. You're a more sober congregation. I appreciate I appreciate that point. But this is so much the root of marriage conflict, isn't it? Right? That in the marriage we assume that the issue is our spouse and if our spouse was different or if I had a different spouse or if they were behaving differently then then I could be more loving. Then I could be more patient. Then I could be more kind. Then I could express my affection. Or if I only had new kids, right? That's a little harder to swap out the kids than it is to swap out the spouse. But oh, it's my kids. If I had different kids, I could be more patient, right? The problem is not that I'm not a patient person. The problem is my children, right? Or if I only had a new house, I could be more content. If I only had a different car Whatnot, I could be more content. So that we look at these, this inner turmoil in our life, our, our inner discontent or lack of love or lack of patience or lack of purpose, and we, rather than owning it in ourselves, we put it on our circumstances. We move it to the outside, right? Like the Pharisees did. That the problem is out there. The problem could never be me. We see the brokenness in our lives, but imagine that the cause of it is primarily circumstantial which is really just another way of saying that our brokenness is someone or something else's fault. It's really what we're saying, right? It's not my fault that I'm not loving. It's my spouse's fault. It's not my fault that I'm not patient. It's my kids' fault. It's not my fault that I'm full of lethargy and uninspired. It's my job's fault. It's not my fault that I'm not content. It's, It's because of, look, look at the house I have to live in. We push everything to the outside. We blame someone or something else for what is fundamentally a root issue in our own lives. The problem isn't me. The problem is out there. Or we make another move. This is a bit different. Uh, This is a bit kind of a different thing. This is maybe a bit more even like the Pharisees. I think this is something that we do particularly to religious people. We can spend time putting up hedges in our lives, our own kind of versions of hand-washing like the Pharisees did. We put internet filters on our phone or on our computers, or we make sure there's no snack food in the pantry because we're so prone to, to overeating or to comfort eating. We recognize the dangers of alcohol and we're nervous about that, and so we make sure there's no alcohol in the home and we abstain entirely, and on and on it goes. Now, these can all be necessary and good, and I have hedges in my own life, and um, I'm not out to say that we shouldn't uh, have hedges, but we need to keep in mind that hedges are for sinners. Why do we have hedges in our lives? It's because we don't trust ourselves, because we know that we're weak, because we know that there is something inside of us that is broken and drawn to dysfunctional and destructive and sinful patterns of behavior. Hedges are not a sign of our strength. Hedges are not a sign of our purity. Hedges are not a sign of our spiritual might. Hedges are an indictment against us. Hedges may be necessary as a temporary measure. And I would say that they are necessary as a temporary measure. Christ was probably the only man that could go through life who didn't need hedges. But the rest of us, we're going to need some hedges in our lives because we're just not that strong. They may be necessary as a temporary measure, but they can never be the final solution to sin because hedges can't hedge out the sin in our hearts. You build the hedges up, and you block out the external sin, but you still have all the internal sin. You've just hedged in the internal sin. It's a little bit like in a flood. You put the sandbags out to keep the floodwaters from coming well enough, but then the sewer backs up into the basement, all the gunk that's there, right? The hedges are the sandbag. That works out well, but you can't hedge out the sewage that is endemic to the human condition. It is out of the heart, Jesus says, that all these evil comes, So hedges, yes, they can be important, they can be helpful, but hedges, the fact that we need them are an indictment against us. And hedges, hedges cannot take care of the internal corruption that we carry. At the end of the day, no amount of rearranging of our circumstances, no hedges that we build, no matter how high or how thick, can resolve the problem of internal sin, John Milton, in his uh, famous epic poem, Paradise Lost, maybe perhaps you've read it, but he uh, has an account, Satan has been cast out of heaven down into hell, the demons are down in hell, they're trying to figure out what to do next. Satan is going to to fly out of hell, and uh, as he is flying out of hell, a horrible truth descends upon him. Listen to how Milton puts this. Now rolling boil in his tumultuous breast, and like a devilish engine back recoils upon himself, horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stirs the hell within him. For within him hell he brings, and round about him, nor from hell one step no more than from himself can fly. Satan is trying to flee the confines of hell, and as he breaks free from hell, he realizes that hell is inside of him. He cannot escape it. Finally, in despair, Satan cries, Me, miserable, which way shall I fly? Infinite wrath and infinite despair. Whichever way I fly is hell. I myself am hell. This is Jesus' statement about the indwelling reality of sin. Fly whatever way we will, we carry our own personal hell around inside of us, and no matter which way we turn, we cannot shake it loose. Until we come to terms... Until we come to terms with this fundamental truth that sin arises from the heart and not our circumstances, not our environment, we will never make progress in breaking free from sin. We will always be blaming something or someone else. Or we're going to spend all of our efforts trying to manipulate our circumstances in an effort to address our dysfunction. And if we succeed in building massive hedges like the Pharisees, we will only be turning ourselves into little Pharisees, looking good on the outside. But full of sewage on the inside. Or Jesus uses the analogy of the Pharisees of whitewashed tombs, so pretty on the outside, but full of deadness and rot on the inside. The primary lesson from Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees is that we need to stop making excuses for our sin or pretending that we have none. We need to stop thinking that the ultimate solution to our brokenness lies outside of ourselves out there, and that if we manipulate our circumstances or our environments or build our hedges high enough, we can solve the problem of our sin. But this leaves us with a little bit of a conundrum, because if sin comes from the inside out and can't fundamentally and ultimately be controlled by our circumstances, our environment, then what hope do we have? Where do we find deliverance if not from the outside? We look to the inside and all we see is sin. Matthew gives us the story of the Canaanite woman immediately following, and I think this is intentional to pair in conversation with the Pharisees. Both Matthew and Mark have this account of the Canaanite woman and this episode with Jesus with the Pharisees and the hand-washing dispute, and they're put back-to-back and they're put back to back, I think, for a very intentional reason, because what we see contrasted between the clean Pharisees who are judged by God, judged by Jesus, with the unclean Gentile woman gives us an indication about how we are to come to Jesus in light of our sins. So now, more quickly looking at this issue of the Canaanite woman in verses 21 through 28 the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. Jesus is no longer in Jerusalem or in uh, the land of uh, Judea or Israel. He's moved outside of the land of Israel and uh, he's uh, in the land of the Canaanites and he's approached by a Canaanite woman. Now, Gentiles were bad just in general, but there are different kinds of Gentiles. You have the Roman Gentiles and the Greek Gentiles, but here we have a Canaanite Gentile and the Canaanites were those that were in the land when the Israelites came into the land, they are the ones in particular that Jews are not to associate with. The law made provisions to make treaties and agreements and and, uh, bargains with those that were outside the land, Gentiles that were outside the land. But the Gentiles inside the land, the Canaanites, were to be utterly shunned and driven from the land. So this isn't just any old Canaanite. This is a particular kind, or any any old Gentile, but, but a particular kind of Gentile, the Canaanite. Her daughter is oppressed by a demon. She hears about this Jewish miracle worker that is in her land, and so she rushes out to him and begins begging for mercy. She must have been making uh, quite a scene. Jesus is ignoring her. This goes on for some time, long enough for the disciples to become annoyed with the whole circumstance. They probably don't understand why Jesus is not addressing her, they say Jesus just they just want it to stop could you just either heal her or send her away i mean like take your pick but like this is rather obnoxious and Jesus does neither but he says i was sent only to the lost sheep of israel Jesus you might remember now back from a couple uh, weeks ago Jesus is mission, his ministry, ultimately would be be extended to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world, but it wasn't going to come through Jesus directly. It was going to come through Jesus' disciples and through you and I. So Jesus is saying, my ministry is only to the lost sheep of Israel, implying that she's outside of Israel. She's a Canaanite. She's not privy to my ministry. She hears this apparently, and she comes and she falls at Jesus' feet. She says, Lord, help me. And then he answers and says, "It's not right. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." He did not just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you did not just call her a dog, did you? But he did. He did say that. I had true confessions. There are some passages in the Bible where, as a preacher, you just would prefer we're not in the Bible. <laughs> and this is one of those passages. It's just rather bracing and uncomfortable. And commentators have noted this throughout, I mean, just the history of the Christian tradition and, and uh, have offered, like, various ways of trying to interpret it. And some of them are, are rather creative. One uh, kind of one line of thought is to say that Jesus said it with a smile. I like that one. We don't give the bread to the dogs, you know? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's so sweet. That's nice. Another uh, line of thought is to say, um, and Jesus uses this word that's kind of a diminutive of the term dog, so it's kind of little dog. And so, yeah, so the thought is, well, Jesus didn't call her like a big dog, like the wild dogs, but more like a little dog, like you'd find in the house. And I'm sure that was super comforting. We're, she was like, what did he say? And then Peter would be like, no, he said little dog. And she's like, oh, yeah, OK. Because I thought he said big dog, and that I was going to be upset. But little dog, yeah, that's totally fine. I get that. The reference of uh, Gentiles as dogs was a pretty common Jewish slur uh, in those days. And specifically noting the uncleanliness of the Gentiles and the way that they followed their carnal passions. In our day and age, we romanticize the dog, and when you open up your pottery pottery barn magazine and you've got the golden lab who doesn't shed ever apparently, just laying on the on the floor of the living room and it's just so beautiful with the sunlight streaming in. But in In the ancient world, and still, frankly, in many parts of the world today, dogs are not, they're not thought of. like They're scavengers, they're mongrels, they they roll around the city, they're full of fleas, and they're just not attractive. And so to be referenced as a dog or implied that one is a dog uh, is to be implied that they are unclean, they are unfit, they're outside, they're other. And remarkably, Jesus is treating this woman in the same manner that a clean Pharisee would treat an unclean Gentile. So he's just critiqued the Gentiles for their hubris and their cleanliness. And now here he is treating this woman in the same way that we would expect to see a Pharisee, a clean Pharisee, treat an unclean Gentile. Now let me ask you what would you have done if you were the woman? How would you have processed that? I don't pretend to know exactly Jesus' mind or why he responds to this woman in this way when he doesn't respond to other people in this way. My own opinion is that he's testing her. One of the church fathers said uh, that one way to test a person for pride is to require them to humble themselves. I think that works itself out in the rest of this passage. But in any case, Jesus's response to this woman's request for mercy and help is certainly bracing to one's dignity and sense of self-respect. He has put her in her place as an unclean Gentile sinner, as an outsider, someone who doesn't have a right to the ministry that Jesus is bringing. How would you have responded to that? How would I have responded to that? Here's the remarkable thing. She doesn't become indignant. She doesn't spit at him and turn away. She doesn't insult him back. No doubt the Canaanites had their own slurs for Jews, and she doesn't use one of those. Instead, remarkably, she embraces the insult. She accepts Jesus' insinuation that she is an unclean sinner. She doesn't resist the critique. She doesn't resist Jesus in pride like the Pharisees, but humbles herself before Jesus, and she begs for crumbs. Her response is just amazing. "Yes, Lord. but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm, you Call me a dog, I'm a dog. I just, just give me some crumbs. Just give me some crumbs." And she passes the test. and Jesus says, "O oh, woman, such great faith!" You have the thing you desire, and her daughter was healed in that moment. There's only one other place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus proclaims that same pronouncement, such great faith. Do you know where it is? Who knows it? The centurion, another Gentile. The only two places where Jesus commends faith, not just faith, but like great faith, are the two Gentiles, this, the Roman centurion and the Canaanite woman. And the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion is, his faith is so amazing because of his humility. He comes to Jesus, he asks for healing, and, and Jesus is going to come, but the centurion says, no, don't even come. I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. You're, you're too high, you're too exalted. Don't, you, I can't even have you come under my roof, I'm not, roof, I'm not worthy. Just say the word, my daughter, my, my servant will be healed. Jesus commends the faith of the Canaanite. He commends the faith of the centurion. The humility that is present in both seems to be the decisive factor. Augustine, I think, one of the great church fathers, gets this right when he interprets this passage. He comments this of the woman. She therefore cried out, eager to get help, and kept insisting, but she was ignored. Not that mercy might be denied but that desire might be enkindled. Not only that desire might be enkindled, but that humility might be praised. The humility of the unclean Canaanite woman is set in Matthew's gospel in stark contrast to the pride of the clean Pharisees. And that's why I think Matthew brings these two episodes back to back. The cure for human brokenness, Jesus would tell us in these two vignettes, begins in humble faith. We must jettison our pride. We must put to death our, our need to be right in the eyes of others. We must, if I can put it this way, we must embrace the divine insult that we are unworthy sinners. Because fundamentally, that's what the gospel is. It's an insult to human pride and sufficiency. The gospel says, before it says anything else, that we are sinners, that we are on the outside, that we do not merit the grace of God, that the, that the blessing that Christ contains in himself, we have no right to it. That's what the gospel says. And if we will not submit to that divine insult, to that divine critique, And we will never access the blessing of the gospel. The gospel tells us that God loves us, to be sure. But it also tells us that apart from humbly embracing this love, we are ruined. We have no hope in ourselves. God's love extended to us in Christ is the only cure for our brokenness and our sinful hearts. The Pharisees trusted in their external cleanliness, rejected Jesus, and in the end were condemned. The Canaanite woman embraced her brokenness, called out to Jesus in faith, and in the end received Jesus' blessing. So I think fundamentally these two passages come together to, and present us with this question. What kind of person are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Religious and clean, like the Pharisees, who in their failure to admit their sin and brokenness failed to lay hold of God's blessing. Or you can be unclean and broken, like the Canaanite woman, who in her self effacing humility received unmerited divine aid. The gospel confronts us with our need of Christ. As Christians, we can, we can lose our way a little bit. Like the, the righteous Jews of old who took the word of God seriously, wanted to obey the law, and began to erect scaffolding around it. No doubt very well-intentioned at first. But the more they built, the more they became devoted to their scaffolding and forgot fundamentally, that no amount of scaffolding could save them from the corruption that was inside their heart. As Christians, as religious people, we run the risk of doing that, developing our scaffolding around us to preserve our relationship with the Lord. And we think that somehow in that scaffolding is deliverance, but at the end of the day, that's not where the deliverance comes from. It comes from humbly accepting the divine insult of the gospel and a Appealing to Jesus for mercy. That's where our hope comes from. Perhaps as a non-Christian this morning, you have chased after other things. You don't use religious means to try to fix your life. Perhaps you've looked at your circumstances. You think that outside of you is where deliverance will be found. Or perhaps you've never come to terms with the fact that the brokenness is inside of you, not outside of you. And being confronted by that even this morning, Jesus would turn the spotlight on human brokenness not to condemn us, but to show us where we need true healing, to invite us to have the posture of the Canaanite woman, to come to him in humility and receive the thing that we desire, to be free of our brokenness. I think these passages brought together also Invite this question What kind of people, what kind of congregation are we going to be as a church? As a religious community, as Calvary Memorial Church, who are we going to be as we interface with Oak Park, with Austin, with Berwyn, with Forest Park, and beyond? Are we going to be self righteous like the Pharisees? Going to look all clean, make sure we've got it all together? building our hedges, keeping people out? Are we gonna be willing to embrace the posture of our brokenness collectively as a congregation to not put on airs, not pretend, not try to be something that we're not, just be recipients of God's grace so that as we interact with those that are outside the faith community, we're not coming across as holier than thou or better than them or having figured something out. We're just as much in need of God's grace as everybody else. It's the kind of church that Jesus is calling us to be. The mission of Christ that he has given to us does not require us to be a a community of perfection, but a community of grace and brokenness. Not covering up our sin, not washing our hands to avoid each other, but touching lepers, touching the sick, Touching each other, touching the lost. So Jesus, Jesus presents here in these two passages the, cure, the, the, the root of sin, it's human pride, it's our human heart, it's endemic to us as human beings. And the cure to sin, humble faith, the posture of humility, coming to Jesus in faith and asking for help. Let's, by God's grace, be Canaanite woman, the unclean Canaanite woman, and not the clean Pharisees. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for giving us your word. We would, in many ways, so much rather be clean Pharisees who seem to have it all together. But if we're honest with ourselves, we look deep into our own hearts. We know that it's just not true. And we see the brokenness that is there. And we acknowledge afresh this morning that we need divine aid. We cannot cast the demons out on our own. We cannot drive out the sin on our own. We cannot hedge it off. We cannot change our circumstances. We are completely at your mercy. And we would pray, Lord, like the Canaanite woman, Lord, help us. Help us. We accept the rebuke of the gospel. We accept the insult. We understand our need. We pray to you for mercy. And God, we thank you that when we come to you in humility, when we come to you as those on the outside, you make us children who have all the rights, the children of God who live on the inside. God, we thank you for that. Give us faith to believe that Jesus longs to heal us longs to save us, and makes things well with us. God, thank you for your son. In his name we pray, amen.